welcome back to another episode of Off the Ah uh, Got You. Everybody, welcome back, man. It's so good to be back. Uh, we are in stage two of Off the Top Podcast at this point. We are no longer being called that. Uh, we are now about cast. Uh, welcome back, guys. I'm so happy to see you again. Uh, obviously, it's Jordan. Julian, how you doing, man? Yo, I'm happy. We're back. I'm excited. The best archaeologist, the fastest archaeologist in the game, still digging for that information that you love just under a new name. And it's it's been a nice break. Some big things have happened. And we look forward to where the podcast is going, restructured a little bit. But Jordan, know how have things for this break been for you? Dude, uh, a lot of stuff's happened, obviously. Uh, so for you guys, uh, quick catch up. I'm obviously out in London right now. I was going to grad school. I literally yesterday, I turned in my dissertation. Um, so now I'm a free man. Uh, it feels amazing to kind of like it's been a whole year of doing that. So now I'm ready to get on to the new stuff. How about you, man? You know, things have been good. Just staying low, doing what I do, trying to avoid people, eating cookies, snacking on snacks. I, I want to ask you, Jordan, would you rather be considered a master in your field or the ultimate black belt of your field? Uh, I would love to be considered the master of black belts in my field. <laughs> <laughs> the killer of the killers. I love to see the, it. Yeah, the financial economic economists of the financial economists of financial economy. And so when you, now being a master, the one thing I wanted to ask you about is when you look at the values of things um, in terms of physical money, what are some decisions that you make before making a large purchase? Um, well, it depends on what it is. Uh, like anybody, like, you know, it's a, is it a want thing? Is it a need thing? Um, you know, how long have I thought about it? How long am I going to use this thing for? Just kind of your regular stuff. But obviously it's, you know, anything any decision like that it comes down to money at the end of the day right right and typically when i make decisions i don't know i've been trying to transition to using physical cash but as of recently i just you know debit credit uh, paypal venmo cash app whatever it may be it's crazy the amount of money that is being used where you never see the physical amount or hold the physical amount it's just more like numbers on your phone going up and going down. And I think that's just something very interesting if you compare it to older societies to where we are now, how money um, has transitioned to the state that it is now. and is currently transitioning into almost a non-existent state in a way in terms of physicality. Dude, you're preaching to the choir at this point, man. Like imagine me uh, going and spending, like I'm all like card for the most part, not a lot of cash. And then also on top of that, I have an exchange rate to go off of too. So it's like, there's another extra layer of, Oh, how much is this thing? Oh, it's this amount. Well, what's that in USD? Cause that's how I usually think about things. So I think you're right in the way that, you know, the way that things are transforming, you don't need, um, that physical cash is, now becoming obsolete and there's even places that won't even accept your physical cash anymore 
And so for you guys keen of ear and thinking, all right, what are these guys talking about? We are going to be breaking it down and talking about the invention of money in the past and its use and its potential in the future, in the present as well. Yeah, and that can be a huge, a huge, it's going to be a huge jump for you listeners. It's actually pretty interesting how money has changed over time and, you know, where we get to where you're seeing you're just giving $1,300 USD for the new iPhone. And before, you know, all that happens when we do the sweet digging, you know, with the restructure to Aboutcast, we change up the podcast a little bit. Uh, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to jump right in to the good stuff. Cooler than the other side of the pillow, our audience is. This is Aboutcast, hosted by Julian and Jordan, uploaded weekly. We'd love if you guys rated us, shared us, liked our podcast, followed it, did anything you want, because we're here for you. We appreciate your support. Now let's get back into the content. Welcome back. We hope you guys like the new structure so far, but where I want to start jumping right into the vault is... Jordan, why does money exist? Good, good question, man. Basically, money exists because we got tired of trading. Uh, truly, in the way of money is there to be a lubricant to trade and allow humans to specialize in a way. So beforehand, before money, it was like, ah, oh, damn, bro. You have the sweet corn, the corn husks. I have a piece of dog bone you want to trade in a way. And so back then it really relied on coincidental wants in the way that, you know, the only trade that would be going down is between two people that wanted what the other person had in a way. And now with money that opens up the door to trading with everybody, so to speak. And I'm doing air quotes in my hands when I say trading. Right. And the thing too with money is, for a while, you look at things and they're always related to some sort of commodity. So you are assigning value of something for another thing. So if someone wants to give you all the corn husk and they're willing to take a dog bone, that's great. But eventually it got to the point where what if you want to get rid of your corn husk, but you don't want to accept dog bones? Then you have to go through all this work to find someone else to trade to. And then you start carrying around these large um, amounts of goods, essentially, whether that be um, dog bones or certain linens, X and Y. And you got to think back in those days as you're traveling by horseback or by feet across the country, you're A, carrying a lot of weight, B, likely to be robbed. So eventually um, you get to this point where you're in the gold standard of um, the economy or the gold standard of currency. So basically to cut the gold standard into the simplest terms or even an anecdote, imagine if uh, everybody got together and was like, hey man, you know what? Everyone likes gold. So how about we just make lighter versions of this gold thing that represents gold? So basically the dollar back in the day in the U.S., represented a piece of gold. And in 1879, Americans could trade in $20.67 for an ounce of gold. So that was the direct tie. And this was actually amazing in a way of finally allowing people to be able to 
not carry around dog bones, corn husks, camel titties, whatever, and start carrying around dollars. You like that camel titty, didn't you, Julian? <laughs> It'd be a very interesting trade, I would say the least. And so, you know, we, we rely on this gold standard for a little bit as Americans um, in most co- economies. And then you jump to U.S. abandons it in 1933 and officially severed that in 1971 as you realize, you know, you have to adjust the value of um, the dollar at a, you know, an easier rate. And there's such a finite amount of gold at that time that, you know, maybe it was coming up a little bit slower. Um, and so we kind of go into this, this land of what we call fiat money. Yeah. And for all of you guys, here's where like kind of the, the, the weenies will spark up and be like, Oh, like the government, uh, like the dollar doesn't really mean anything. Uh, it's not tied to any value. Yeah, you're right. But what it is tied is, uh, it's backing to the government that supports the supports it. So for instance, um, you know, it's not tied to gold. It's not tied to anything, but what it is tied to is the power of the United States government in a way. And so it has strength in that sense. And it also has a lot of beautiful things that the gold standard dollar didn't have. So, for instance, um, when you're talking about fiat money, uh, you have the ability to print more of it and not not affect or have anything else affect that dollar itself. So, for instance, if we were hanging out in 1879 and all of a sudden uh, somebody found a whole bunch of gold, instead of paying uh, 20 bucks for an ounce of gold, it might be 15 all of a sudden, which would dramatically inflate the dollar out of nowhere when with fiat money, it's a lot more calculated, a lot better timed, and you can kind of facilitate things in an artificial way that you couldn't before. Exactly. And so now you have kind of a basic understanding of where in the society of fiat money, um, so to speak, and transitioning. And then, you know, you've dealt with commodities such as gold in the past, but, you know, where did it begin? How did it start? And you really have to take it back to understand that human history has been using some form of currency for at least 3,000 years, which is a very small blip on the time scale, but, you know, a large portion of human history. And so for that, before those 3,000 years, and they're using forms of currency, it was just bartering as we alluded to earlier, such as go kill this mammoth and I'll give you a stone ax. Something like a quest from a video game where you go do something, you get rewarded with a legendary or epic item. But in this case, that's how the world was going. And that's kind of where that history and how video games took some of that. And so during this bartering time, you know, it was very obscure items people traded for wants and needs. And it eventually transitions over to the first official currency in 600 BC. Yeah, and so basically the the Iron Age kingdom of West Asia minted the first currency. And these coins were made of electrum, which sounds like electricity, which is dope, but it's actually a natural occurrence of silver and gold. And then, you know what, man? I feel like China and, like, Asia was always on cool stuff before everyone else. And the fact of, you know, they're they're messing around with gunpowder. They're messing around with, 
you know, currency back in the day when nobody was. Maybe they were just the hipsters who were trying to find, like, the newest thing that nobody else was on. Now they're on, you know, some other stuff, I'm sure. Um, but it was them, and then you'll see it in 700 BC. Uh, Chinese then swapped to actual paper currency, not the Electrum coins anymore. Uh, but it wasn't widely adopted as well. And then... And it's fascinating, like you said, how quick the Chinese have jumped on things. Um, And maybe they're first in market. And sometimes being first in market is great. And sometimes being first in market, there's a lot of obstacles. And so you see in 700 BC that they adopt paper currency. But it isn't really pushed forward and widely adopted until Kublai Khan, the fifth Kong, introduced paper money in 1260. And... You know, you're listening to this and you know, I'm familiar with the con name. You know, they were brutal. You know, they had tactics to enforce this paper currency. And this was discovered by Marco Polo when he visited the region that essentially the way they had pushed this currency through was saying, all right, you have to use this. You can't forge it. And so if you don't use it or you do forge it, we'll kill you. And that was it. I mean, that's a pretty simple way to get people to use money with the power of a, the con running the government or the economy or the system at that time to say, hey, I have people and those people will find you and those people will kill you if you don't use my money that I've authenticated. What a what a persuasive man, like the gift of gab to just convince everybody just like that. Hey, man, would you like to use this? Uh, you can live if you do. Boom. Everyone's using it. Legendary. It's fascinating because they made their 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 money, so to speak, from mulberry tree leaves with silkworms, turned that, you know, fine white bastard skin into sheets of various fi- sizes, uh, stamped it, authenticated it, gave it out. Don't use it. You get killed. It's very fascinating um, to me that that's how paper money was enforced in 1260, so less than... 700 years ago at this point but from 700 bc up until then they there wasn't a paper money going on so people were just lugging around um, and trading still with different forms of notes in some areas the more fascinating thing to me is like my my mind goes into how did it start like did they have people come in and assign wealth to them or did they basically have people sell sell to the government what they owned? So how do you acquire that wealth in the first place? Does everyone get the same amount? Or does people get different amounts on different distinctions of some sort? So that's where I would be super curious to figure out exactly how would they disperse that. Because that in itself would... And I'm sure it's not going to be exactly like to the book as far as fairness goes but at the same time it would just make makes the mind wonder how much money is you know somebody else getting compared to the other right and it's it's not like at those points in time we'll talk about you know 1260 that people are incurring substantial amounts of debt um you know global trade hasn't really been opened up in the way it is today due to the lack of a common currency or easily tradable currency, as we alluded to earlier, because paper money, you have to think, makes it so easy. In today's society, you know, 
you go to an exchange office, um, you ex- exchange your value of your currency into another country's, they give you that paper money, you go into that area and you're using that. As opposed to back then, it was you're carrying hundreds of pounds of gold across the country and trying to trade. And so you could ensure that there's not a whole lot going on or promising at that point due to communication standards to incur a large amount of debt either. So as we transition to paper currency, one guy who like really gets after it and kind of like shapes the way is a young guy, well not young anymore, but a man by the name of John Law. And so Law was the son of a banker and basically stumbled into France after the nine year war when France, like Julian mentioned, had a massive amount of debt, about uh, one billion lerves or levers. Uh, I don't know the, the actual, um, basically, oh, okay, here we go. The actual transition or the exchange rate to that would be roughly about 10 plus billion USD. It's fascinating that you can incur that much debt during that time. Um, and that's a rough number, Jordan alluded to. But essentially what they were doing, France at the time, was they went into this giant war, couldn't afford it, were giving out these loans to the public, um, and were taking gold from the public to essentially lend out the first banknotes. Like, hey, you gave me this, I'll give you this value back plus interest, and could never get that money back um, during that time. And it started just going ravaging through all of their their reserves, essentially, um, which is just a, a crazy thing to think about if you were in a modern country and they just, you know, we've seen it before in some situations where it's just, you know, we no longer, we're broke, we no longer have money. Um, and that's the perfect time for, you know, our guy, John Law, to step yeah, in. Yeah, and I think that, you know, this would be quite interesting to kind of compare their GDP at this point to um, after the nine-year war, I'm sure France's GDP is dipped. Um, but that is a big indicator when it comes to like debt is what percentage of GDP is that. And in that way, you can kind of understand like how serious the, the actual um, environment or the situation is for a com- country. And this is nowadays, that's how it's used. Um, but nevertheless, this guy comes in and after escaping, uh, bro, all right, this guy's just a just a lawless creature. Ironically, with the last name Law, after escaping prison for slaughtering a manslaughter by sword duel, uh, he goes. <laughs> Law traveled lands, learning about gambling and finance, and then King Louis, <laughs> after the fourteenth, passes away, and the Duke that steps up puts John Law in charge. What an auspicious career. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> you know, you'd be thankful that social media isn't around that. Essentially, he's a convict on the run, runs around the runs around the country, learns about more money, son of a banker, and just happens to stumble in at the right time to have these, uh, at the time, they considered diabolical concepts um, brewing in his head in terms of money and finance. And it puts him himself to help change the situation in France. And this is where John Law famously quotes, money is not the value for which goods are exchanged, but the value by which they are exchanged. Um, So essentially, you know, money must be turned to the service of trade 
in light of the discretion of the government, prince or parliament, according to the needs of trade. Um, so kind of an early on concept, um, similar to establishing the value of something is what John Law, you know, what Jordan and I alluded to, John Law kind of finds during this time. And I think that's a popular or uh, interesting point and important one in the way of this man's talking about how even though there's stock in the money and at that time, back in that day, uh, you better believe that there was the gold standard on the lever. It still is the government that creates the space or the playground for money to actually have value in a sense. And so furthering this point, um, they started taking obviously gold and silver to exchange for paper money. Uh, if the gold was worth $400 in the open market, Laws Bank would give you $1,000. So basically, um, uh, uh, basically uh, giving you on margin. And then that paper money would outpace the actual gold, which would then be a precursor for like kind of the, probably not the original, but a form of fractional reserve banking that we see commonly done today. And at this time, as a citizen, you, you hear, I get $400 on the street for this, but if I give it to our banks, I'm going to get a thousand dollar in paper money and notes essentially. And the establishment of banks and this giant influx was great to open global trade, which John Law was also big on. He was part of the Western company, Western Mississippi company, and actually purchased some of the the land at that area at that time. But essentially now you have all these people going to banks, so it's a lot easier to send someone by horse from one bank to another to transfer those funds and say, hey, I want to buy from this dealer at this time who sold me a fine rug. And instead of sending someone with the equivalent of gold and possibly getting robbed on the way, they go to the bank. The bank sends their notes over to the certain city or district, and then that is provided to the banker um, or the dealer. And so it makes that trade a lot easier at that time. Exactly. This is a game changer for the actual management of money in itself, as well as obviously um, pushing paper money to kind of this ubiquitous level that is every single space everywhere. And then uh, at this point, I think it, Julian said it, um, we are going to be changing up the transition or the format of this again. So we're going to take one more quick break and then get back to you guys about the future of money and the currency and the present as well. Welcome back. Oh my gosh. You know what? It's so good to see your gorgeous ears or speak to your gorgeous ears again. Um, <laughs> so now I told you guys that we're going to be talking about present and future. And so we've talked a lot about how governments can kind of manage money and how kind of uh, fractional reserve banking, which is kind of a way creating inflation. So we're going to kind of mention how governments have basically really wrecked themselves before they got to check themselves on the game of inflation. And it's these stories are unbelievable. Some of these numbers we're about to throw out in terms of inflation percentages um, are phenomenal. And I, it'll give you a lot of perspective on how certain countries have 
trillionaires and that doesn't equate to really anything in any other currency exactly so without further ado uh, a current actually we'll go from past to now current um so one of the most kind of like sal- salient um versions or examples of hyperinflation was in old germany uh, in about 1922 to 1923 and basically this was after world war one germany's game plan was to acquire all like you know resource rich land to kind of uh assuage their debt that they were incurring and all the losses that they were incurring through the war obviously that didn't happen for them and so before um like this is going to be a great and stark example of how it was and then how it became really really quickly so the german mark to the u.s dollar was you can get one dollar to 4.2 marks in 1914. nine years later that one dollar is worth worth 4.2 trillion marks. <laughs> Ridiculous. This is to the point where people were selling their houses to get food, and by the time they got money to buy, like from their house that they just sold, they couldn't even afford a cup of coffee. That's how horrible it was in that day and in that time frame, and it just shows. Uh, how rampant and like uncontrollable hyperinflation really is it's phenomenal because you know this was happening during world war one essentially and we understand how that ended up and so you can see why printing an unbacked currency and borrowing money can put you in a large hole where you have to adjust very quickly but sometimes adjusting quickly is not responsible and you get this crazy exchange rate and it really ruins the the local economy um, based on those numbers that you're adjusting for. And another great example is how Venezuela, currently the home of hyperinflation right now, um, and we'll start in 2016, saw inflation of about 800%. And that's like child's play for Venezuela. They said, hold my Venezuelan beer on that piece. And then... In the next year, it came to 4,000%. And then in 2018, it was over a million and a half percent inflation. So at these numbers, basically try, and it's hard to wrap your head around, and I can't imagine what it's like to be in actually that exact place, but it would imagine it being, um, so $2.2 for an uncooked chicken. Imagine that equating to 14.6 million Boliviers for an uncooked piece of chicken. Truly unbelievable. Doug, that's going to be the best raw chicken meal you've ever had in your life. And it, I mean, it's funny when you look at things and you're like, wow, that, that person is essentially a millionaire, but adjusted realistically, it's $2. And you can see that's why some people, when they retire, really play the exchange rate for the value of the USD or the Euro um, or the strongest currency at the time to say, hey, it may be a little bit more inexpensive to live here because the exchange rate highly favors us. Um, And that's, you know, you look at Venezuela. I can't remember what country off the top of my head holds trillion dollar notes, 
but there's another area. Yeah, I think that might be, uh, and this is, I'm pulling this straight from these facts out of my ass, but I think that's Zimbabwe. I'm not even kidding you. That sounds, that sounds about right. Um, and so you can see how hyperinflation kind of can run rampant if you don't adjust accordingly, um, with this fiat money. And I don't think it would really work with the, uh, similar to a gold standard directly tying to a commodity, but now you're kind of going to, you know, it's still a version of fiat money, but you look a lot of the, the digital currencies out there, such as cryptocurrency or what Facebook has announced with the Facebook Libra, which almost could set a, sets a universal currency instead of having USD in the Euro, um, in the yen, you just have one Bitcoin or you have X amount of Libra coins that could really change the game of trade and how money is purveyed. Yeah. And so now we're kind of getting into what money is turning into kind of like Julian mentioned, and it gets really, really interesting in the fact of, um, especially in Facebook's, uh, Facebook Libra, um, in that instance is because, um, at this point we're dealing with now, if this gets so widespread, um, people won't have access to actual currency. So for instance, imagine if Facebook Libra was everywhere, you can buy anything with it. You can go anywhere with it. Um, but some people aren't allowed to use Facebook for some reason they're banned. They literally might be cut off mm-hmm. of the entire society of being able to live and things of that nature. And on top of that, um, I think that we're seeing kind of uh, an interesting situation transpiring right now in China as far as kind of the uh, the social scoring that they're doing. And in that way, basically, they are controlling how people move and what people can do by um, regulating a social score in a way of, for instance, if I walk down the street and help the lady across the street, that might pick up my social score. But if I littered, it would drop it. And at certain levels, you won't be able to leave the country. You won't be able to buy train tickets. You won't be able to be approved for loans at that point with that, like a certain social score. And I think that in a way, that is also a currency in the fact of it, it's limiting to your potential, your future and your capabilities as far as options go. When at the end of the day, it is something that's government regulated, almost like fiat money, but in a way more cynical way, I believe. Right. And it could be one of those things that appears very strong, overwhelming, diabolical, unfair at the moment. But I think it's one of those things that if implemented correctly, could really change the game uh, because it gives essentially, you know, your good citizens an opportunity to share that to the world by traveling and them understanding things of that nature. And it also eliminates potentially in the long run, putting people in power who have a very poor social score rating, even though they may be very well informed on the field, if they've had a very poor history of interactions and scams and illegal activities or shady dealings, things of that nature, it's going to eliminate some of that corruption or on the contrary, you you could really beat the system and implement more corruption 
in that era. Exactly. I think it'll just be kind of like the normal trend and natural trend that we're seeing more and more. Everything's getting more interconnected with technology and the internet, and so is our currency in a way. It'll be more of a connection to uh, who we are as people, what we do, what we like to do, what we dislike, um, who we hang around with. And I believe that that's truly going to um, manifest itself and almost uh, be uh, perverse throughout everything, including currency, in the far future. And I'm not talking about five years from now. I'm talking 60. I'm talking long-term years. Uh, The type of scale that, if I'm wrong, None of you guys are going to be able to say, hey, Jordan, look, you're wrong because I'm already dead. So suck it. So that is uh, the history of money. You see, you know, different standards of money, where it started, where it's heading, how people have abused it and some of the the bank roots, so to speak. But overall, Jordan, what would you give kind of your summary of the state of paper money? The paper money? I think that the summary of the state of paper money is uh, it was a huge technological advancement for its time, and it has been for over like thousands of years. Now, I believe that it's taking a backseat to electronic, basically numbers and ones and zeros as far as using credit cards and plastic. And I think that eventually that'll be moving to biometrics in the future. Um, and so I think that we're going to be seeing kind of the... Uh, the last the last throws of paper currency and it's going to be a sad one to see it go because it's like such a stronghold but just like the kind of the mp3 jack in phones i think that it is going to be a growing pain and one that we might not see coming the one that might be one of those things where how do you boil a frog you put it in water and then you crank the heat up slowly but I don't think that it's going to be here for the very, very long run. How about you? I found it very interesting during our research how things work in cycles. So originally you start with trading goods for goods. That becomes inefficient. You start trading a certain good for goods. Uh, it becomes inefficient again. You roll into tying a lighter type of currency to a commodity. So paper money and that ex- or notes, receipts, etc. That eventually becomes inefficient. You go to fiat money where you're adjusting for inflation. That works for a while. Technology evolves. Cash has now become inefficient. As you notice, more people carry their cards on them. And now we're going to digital. And so this cycle, I think, is going to continue to go. And that's kind of where Jordan alluded to, where you get to more biometric or that's, you know, simply facial recognition, um, fingerprints, some sort of code that you have um, or access to this thing, you know, maybe a universal currency, things of that nature. So it's very, very peculiar on, you know, how money has evolved and how things back then may have been diabolical, like uh, what John Law was doing to open global trade with paper money. And, you know, now we go into Facebook, Libra and cryptocurrency, which seems nuts. But, you know, things happen over long scales of time. And I think we're really at the the beginning steps of that digital currency. Exactly. And so to kind of um, wish you guys well and say goodbye, 
um, for our first episode is about cast. Uh, I know that the basically the format of these podcasts have changed, but that doesn't mean that we're just different people. And it actually means that we're going to be doing a lot of things better as far as uh, communicating with you guys, showing more love. Uh, I appreciate everyone who has kind of found the podcast while we were on our break. It was so encouraging to see, you know, the almost the growth of just their past work and everything. Uh, it definitely helps keep the momentum alive. And I'm happy to be doing this to, with you guys. I'm happy to be, um, you know, welcomed back and uh, starting to tear it up with you guys and Julian from now on. Let's take this relationship to the next level. Uh, like, tell your friends. Um, and if you get anything out of this podcast, be sure to kind of let us know what you got out of it. Any recommendations, all of that good stuff, man. Um, I feel like we're kind of creating a community and a family. And so it's all love. Share your ideas. Reach out to us. We'll love it. Truly. Thanks, guys. And as we take this WD-40 shower and are washing off the rust, we have some big things coming. We're really excited. I, I think you guys will enjoy some of the topics we have in the near weeks. Um, right now we're dialing those back in, but if you do have anything you'd like us to touch on or any questions, we'd love to run through that in an episode or make, you know, an episode dedicated to your topic. So as Jordan said, you know, reach out to us, follow, like, rate, do whatever you want. Um, we really appreciate your support. And as archeologists, we'll keep on digging and we'll catch you next time.